Good Shabbos, everybody. Good Shabbos. And Chatima Tova. Gemar Chatima Tova. This morning's reading, Kriyasa Torah this morning, essentially brings us to Parshat Acharimot in, in Leviticus. Leviticus brings us into deep conversation with sacred space. Sacred space, the temple, the sanctuary was a place where daily we could come and, and purge, cathart, release, be forgiven. The idea of a sanctuary, the idea of a mishkan, the idea of a tabernacle, and then later on a mikdash in Jerusalem was that we would have a holy place to go to that would in some way be a locus, a foci for our transformative needs. It was a one-stop shop, an Amazon before there was an Amazon for all of your spiritual goods delivered right there in Jerusalem. And into that sanctuary, a horrific tragedy takes place on the very day that it was consecrated, the day that it opened, it was opening day at sanctuary and two children of Aaron went in to the sanctuary and the story is a difficult story. It's hard to read the story. People read it in a thousand different ways but the two children of Aaron brought a strange fire or a fire that wasn't commanded and they were taken. They died. They were the first offerings in the sanctuary. And our Parsha picks up, our reading this morning picks up where they have just passed. Acharemos, literally the first two words, Acharemos, after the death of the children of Aaron, Nadav and Avil. And what comes, what is given to Aaron, Aaron, who as a father, of course, he doesn't want to go back into the place where his children were taken. The entire Yom Kippur rite, R-I-T-E, the entirety of what we read about was done in the temple was a direct response to that moment. It was the offerings and the rite of cleansing and getting on, moving on if that's possible. And so in the past when I've spoken about this on, on Yom Kippur morning, we've talked about this as a, an aliyah for those who need the strength to move on after something very difficult. And of course, this year in our country, there could not be a better message than how do we move forward when we have experienced so much shock and awe? How do we move forward when so many of us are feeling this morning after the death of Heather Heyer and after all of the hurricanes that has been such a bad year, a horrible year. I want to explore a different tack, though. I want to bring out... I want to bring out the two goats that were used as part of that ritual and a way that people moved forward was in those goats. One of the great ironies, writes Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, is to be found in the shift of meaning attached to the word scapegoat. Scapegoat. The word was born in 1530 when William Tyndale, 
who translated the Hebrew Bible into English for the first time, tried to, tried to name this goat that was sent into the desert, and he called it an escape goat. Get it? And pretty soon, the E got dropped, and it became a? So this escape goat served a very important function. According to the French scholar René Girard, one of the most compelling reasons for the scapegoat was to attenuate the violent nature of what it is to be a human being and to be with other human beings. According to Girard's thesis, violence at the heart of religious ritual and its expunging. Vengeance, he writes, professes to be an act of reprisal. Every reprisal calls for another reprisal. Vengeance, then, is interminable, he writes. Infinitely repetitive. Every time it turns up, in some part of the community, it threatens to involve the whole social body. There is the risk that the act of vengeance will initiate a chain reaction whose consequences will quickly prove fatal to any society of a modest size the multiplication of reprisals instantaneously puts the very existence of the society in jeopardy, and that is why it is universally proscribed. So we know this to be true. We know that reprisal after reprisal, whether it's the Montagues and the Capulets, whether it's the Jets and the Sharks, whatever it is, we know that tit-for-tat always works to undermine the social fabric. We know it in relationships. Friends, come on in an argument with a loved one, and we get back at them or we hold a grudge, we know it could go on interminably when we keep score. And that's why in ancient Israel, that understanding led them to create Arei Miklat. That if you accidentally murdered somebody, there was a place where you could go that you would be safe because they knew in the Torah that if we allowed vengeance to be operative, it wouldn't end. And even more than that, when the Torah tells us, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it then goes on in the very next verse and says, do not take vengeance out on them. As if to understand that the very nature of what it is to live with each other is to be hurt and then to pay it back with more hurt. So Gerard's thesis is this, and this is where the scapegoat comes in. The scapegoat's purpose, he writes, the scapegoat's purpose is to deflect the internal violence of both sides by directing it outward against a victim, a third party, who is not a member of either group, but whose death brings the violence to an end, someone who is relatively unprotected and can therefore be killed without fear of reprisal. In ancient Athens, there was the institution of a pharmakos, a cripple or a beggar, or a criminal who was kept alive so that he could be cast out of the city to die if disaster threatened. The scapegoat was the third entity. We are fighting and we place it onto a third story that can be relatively given to. And somehow we bond over our collective killing of the third. 
Now, lest you think this is so barbaric and evil, according to Girard, this actually served a very important function in society. It actually allowed those groups to bond and to not kill each other. Sacrifices were sacrificed, but whole societies stayed together. Now, in ancient Israel, this is where it becomes interesting, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. That very ritual of creating a, a scapegoat, a scapegoat actually doesn't take place to put the sins and the violence between us onto a third party. But it takes place within the context of confession of my own personal vidui, my own personal admittance of wrong, my own wish for forgiveness. In ancient Israel, in the temple, when they placed their sins onto the scapegoat, they did not place the violence of the other on the scapegoat. They didn't say, oh, here, we'll take an innocent victim. They placed it on the goat as a way of acknowledging that there is this desire often for justice to mean vengeance. And it was neutered. It was neutralized in the Sa'ir Lazazel, in the moment when the goat in the temple was sent out. But how perverse it is that the very notion of a scapegoat, which we introduced to the world, became who we were used by the world for. We Jews, in maybe the oldest and most pernicious hatred that there exists, although Rabbi Sharon Browse pointed out, what about misogyny? That's true. We have for centuries been the scapegoat. It didn't matter if we were rich or poor. It didn't matter if we were in positions of power or we were powerless. There was always a way for Jews to take the blame. Jews will not replace us. Unless we think that scapegoat and the perversion of that original idea is relegated to us. It happens in America all the time. In its original understanding, scapegoat or a scapegoat was that I took my issues, my desire for vengeance, my shortcomings, my faults, my pains, my, my pain of being left out, and I place it onto a scapegoat and say, oh, I am sorry, please forgive me. And instead, it becomes a propitiatory right for those who don't want to work with their own pain, those who don't want to check their own violence and check their own vengeance, those who don't want to feel and take ownership, those who don't want to do the work we began with last night of Hatimatova, what is my role? And so place it on a group. Maybe in America, without a doubt, African-Americans have been that group for centuries. And the list goes on. People of color, LGBTQ, transgender, every marginalized group, especially because they're vulnerable and especially because power wants those for whom no one will fight for to become their scapegoat. It's macro and it's micro. Murray Bowen, the great systems theorist in therapy, said that in every family system, there's also a scapegoat. 
The child who, when there is conflict or where there is pain in the family, says, oh, I'll take it on. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll be the lightning rod. The role of the scapegoat is to help the system balance itself. The scapegoat takes a lot on its back and then gets sent out into the wilderness. This morning's Kratta Torah, this morning's reading of the Torah, brings us face to face with the power of, of using means by which to deflect issues that we should be owning and taking on as our own and placing them on some other group, on some other person. And it enjoins us, it challenges us, and it also demands from us that we really check our scapegoat escape. The way that we get out of looking at what needs to be looked at, dealing with what needs to be dealt with, by finding a third party, a third issue, a something that will deflect us from that deep work. We owe it to ourselves this morning to stand for that. Both for ourselves individually, for this community, for New York, for every concentric circle that you can draw to say enough with the scapegoating. We promise and pledge to do the work that we need to do for ourselves, for our communities, for the society at large, and for those who have been scapegoated, to say no. They are not the issue. It's not their fault. This morning's Kriyat from Parshat Achrei Mot invites all of us to stand and bear witness to that phenomenon and to make the pledge on the inside that we won't let it happen anymore. Never again means never again. Please rise for the first Aliyah.